We'll find 1 Kings chapter 2 tonight. We're going to look at transition plans and admonishments. Transition plans and admonishments. But before we get there, before we read our text and start going through it tonight, just want to do a little bit of review. It seems like it's been so long now since so far removed from our introductory lesson. And just kind of remind you of some of what we covered, how the uh, books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were originally meant to be read as one. And you can see that unity in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, where these books were called the first and first through fourth books of the kingdoms or the reigns. Kingdoms or reigns, translation of one Greek word for, for kingdom or reign, uh, basileia. So, uh, again, the Septuagint even reflecting how they were meant to be read as one historical unit. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the books of Kings conclude the section known as the former prophets, going from Joshua through 2 Kings. And this division covers the time of Israel entering the Promised Land until the time of the loss of the land with the destruction of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom going into exile. Now, we talk about how the last line of the book of Judges says what? In that day, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what would that seem to imply? What did we say that seemed to imply? That if they could only have a king, things would get better, right? But that's not what we see in First and Second Kings, is it? They got a king all right, but you know what? The leadership of the kings failed. It doesn't matter whether you have judges or kings. Uh, we need a righteous king. And of course, that's what God sent in his son, the Messiah, the true righteous king. But all kings, all judges apart from God uh, are faulty. And will be a disappointment. We also mentioned how in these books uh, you see something of the theology of Deuteronomy behind these books. Because in the book of Deuteronomy they were reminded that if their leadership and them as a people, if they remembered God and honored God and obeyed God, then his blessings would be on the land. But if they didn't, if they turned away from God, then they would suffer the consequences. And so that theology of, of Deuteronomy of blessings and curses is kind of a backdrop uh, to this section of Scripture as well. Again, these historical books in the Old Testament are a reminder to us of what can happen when we reject God and instead put our trust in man, we end up in a mess. Well, let's turn to our text for tonight. First Kings chapter 2, uh, beginning there in verse 1, says, When David's time to die drew near, he charged his son Solomon, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and be courageous, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. 
walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Then the Lord will establish his word that he spoke uh, concerning me. If your heirs uh, take heed to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, son of Zeruiah, uh, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he murdered, retaliating in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Deal loyally, however, with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from your brother Absalom. There is also with you Shemai, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a terrible curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death with the sword. Therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you must bring his gray head down uh, with blood to shield. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. She asked, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably. Then he said, may I have a word with you? She said, go on. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, go on. He said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king on your behalf. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. The king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to your brother Adonijah as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom as well, for he's my elder brother. Ask not only for him, but also for the priest Abiathar, and for Joab, the son of Zeru, uh, Zeruiah. 
Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, so may God do to me and more also, for Adonijah has devised this scheme at the risk of his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of my father David, and who has made me a house as he promised, today Adonijah shall be put to death. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, he struck him down and he died. The king said to the priest Abiathar, Go to Anatoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you shared in all the hardships my father endured. So Solomon banished Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, though he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and grasped the horns of the altar. When it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord and now is beside the altar, Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, the king commands, come out. But he said, no, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, do as he said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and to his descendants and to his house and to his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forever. Then Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and killed him, and he was buried at his own house near the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, over the army in his place, and the king put the priest Zadok in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and summoned Shemai and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, and do not go out from there to any place, whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the Wadi Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shemai said to the king, The sentence is fair. As my Lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shammai's slaves ran away to King Achish, son of uh, Makath of Gath. When it was told Shammai, your slaves are in Gath, Shammai arose and saddled a donkey and went to Achish in Gath to search for his slaves. Shammai went and brought his slaves from Gath and when Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly adjure you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, The sentence is fair. I accept. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I charged you? The king also said to Shammai, You know in your own heart all the evil that you did to my father David, so the Lord will bring back your evil on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. 
Then the king commanded Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. You know, folks, it's pretty common in the Bible for men, for some of the pivotal characters of the Bible to issue their final words, uh, their final charge to those who follow him. You know, I think of Jacob doing that in the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, with his sons giving his last words to them. I think of Moses with the children of Israel, because Moses isn't going to be able to go into the promised land, and so all through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving them his final words, his charge that the Lord wanted him to give them before they entered the land. I think of Joshua giving instruction to the people of Israel once they settled in the promised land. He gathers them together, and in that famous speech at the end of Joshua, you remember what he said? Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You come to the New Testament. Uh, I think of Paul giving his last words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. I think of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room discourse in John, John 13 through 17, giving his charge before he's crucified to his disciples. And so on and on we can go through the Bible and see how pivotal characters would give a final charge to those coming after them. And that's exactly what we see here in 1 Kings 2. It's a farewell speech. And oftentimes you need to understand when you see these farewell speeches in the Old Testament, it is a literary marker that a very significant transition of some sort is about to take place. We have a father here who's been the king and he's given advice to his son who's just become king. He's admonishing Solomon in matters that he feels Solomon needs to give immediate attention to. And if Solomon doesn't, then the establishment of Solomon's rule might be weakened or jeopardized in some way. So what's the advice that he gives him? First of all, David's charge, we see David's charge to Solomon about matters of greatest importance. There in verses 1 to 4. And that's your first point on, on your outline I gave you. David's charge to Solomon about matters of greatest importance. Now, some, some commentators, some writers see a hint in David's words here that uh, these words suggest that perhaps Solomon might have been a bit weak. That Solomon had lived a, a sheltered life. I, I think of one very popular writer of decades and decades ago, popular writer with lay people. Uh, he felt like these words were needed because Solomon had been raised a mama's boy in David's court, mainly taken care of by women, by Bathsheba and women. 
And David and all of his exploits hadn't spent the time with Solomon that he had spent with his other sons. And so Solomon was a bit of a mama's boy. That's what this one writer, you know, creatively feels. Um, and, and folks, you know, there's, granted today, there's lots of very successful single parents or maybe just a mom or a dad raising their kids because their spouse is gone all the time and doing a great job at it. Uh, but again, we, you know, we know the ideal is for a child to have a mom and a dad, regardless of what our culture today might say. And so again, this one writer feels like Solomon really needed, he needed these words from his dad. A dad saying to his, his son, you know, I've not been around for you. Uh, and you've just been raised by women. You need to be strong and be a man. I'm, I'm not sure there's a great deal of justification for that opinion, but that opinion is out there. Uh, David highlights to Solomon that he's about to die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. You've heard me say before at funerals how George Bernard Shaw said the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one person's died. If Jesus tarries, we're all going to die. And Romans 5, 12 and following gives the reason for that. That's just one text. But, you know, sin entered through one man, Adam, and that sin spread to all because all of sin. And the wages of sin is death. David is simply acknowledging the obvious here. He's about to die. He's not going to live forever. His health is now failing. It became apparent to us in chapter 1 that his, his, he's right at death's doorstep. And he's just simply acknowledging that. But then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he acknowledges where a man's real strength comes from. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Folks, what great advice this is. Here's the Father saying, if you really want to be strong and show yourself a man, then be a man of God who obeys God. By the way, these words are almost identical to what God told Joshua in Joshua 1. David emphasizes to Solomon the importance of obedience to God. And as you hear these words, you know they're true because it's what God, God's Word teaches from cover to cover. God's Word teaches the blessing of obedience. And we're reminded of Jesus' words in John 15 that there's nothing we can do apart from Him. There's nothing lasting of eternal fruitfulness that we can do apart from the Lord. And so to truly be a man the way God designed for men to be, you need to love and obey God. Folks, being a Christian man doesn't make you less of a man. It makes you more of a man. But you know, you also can't help but feel there's a bit of personal testimony in David's voice. 
as he's telling Solomon these words. Because David, by personal experience, certainly knows the consequences of disobedience to God. Uh, he lived with God's heavy hand against him until he repented of his sin with Bathsheba. And so you can't help the sense that David is saying, son, this is what God's word teaches and I'm here to tell you I had to learn it the hard way. You know, I thought disobedience would be fun and it's not. So Solomon, please take my word for it. Don't go the path that I went. I think there's a bit of that probably in David's advice. And as part of this, he's also reminding Solomon in verse 4 of God's covenant. God had made a covenant with David that David would always have someone on the throne from his family line. But David is acknowledging that with a covenant, people have responsibility too. God's going to fulfill his end of the covenant. There's no question about God's faithfulness. But it's incumbent upon us that we stay faithful to our end of the covenant as well. And David's saying, Solomon, as a leader of God's people, as king, God's put you there. God's chosen you and put you there by his divine design and purpose. And you need to obey the part of the covenant that God would expect of a leader of his people. And so again, he's just reminding Solomon of, of this covenant. And it reminds me again of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 8. That's your assignment for before you go to bed tonight. Go home and read Deuteronomy 8. <laughs> Because again, so much of the theology of Deuteronomy in First and Second Kings, uh, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, second point I want you to see here: David's charge to Solomon about matters he will need to attend to if he wants to firmly establish his rule from the very beginning. Matters he'll need to attend to if he wants to firmly establish his rule from the very beginning. In verses 5 to 9, uh, David shares with Solomon that there are some men, both good and bad, that he's going to have to deal with. Now, you know, on the surface, you might think these sound like some bloodthirsty verses. But you've got to understand the time frame that this situation occurred within. You think politics get dirty today? You've not seen anything like, uh, yet like, like we see in ancient times. Back then, you know, they would stage a coup and they would overthrow a ruler. They, they, they'd kill him and they'd kill off any potential challengers. I mean, it was winner take all. That was standard operating procedure. Uh, and it's how much of the world even today operates in many third world countries around the globe. David is simply giving Solomon some fatherly advice about some men he'd better reckon with. And if he doesn't, he's basically saying, Solomon, you're going to have trouble from day one in your reign if you don't deal with, with these guys here. 
And there's three men that he mentions very specifically. First, there is Joab. You remember who Joab had been? Joab had been David's own military commander. And David knew from personal experience what a conniving man, a sneaky man, and a, a violent and bloodthirsty man Joab could be. Joab could often be given to obsessive violence. And Joab has already shown that he may not be faithful to Solomon. Because remember from last time in chapter 1, we saw that Joab teamed up with Adonijah to hurriedly crown Adonijah as the king. And so right off, David knows that Joab has the potential of being a backstabber to Solomon. Solomon wouldn't be able to trust him. And remember, Joab had killed David's son, Absalom. When Absalom rebelled against David, even though Joab knew, he knew that David wanted Absalom taken alive. And yet he still killed the king's son. And then he also killed Abner and Amasa, both in times of peace. And so Joab, though he was the one-time trusted ally of David who had served in David's court, he had time and time went off on self-serving missions and taken human lives even when King David didn't want him to take lives. You know, Joab's one of those guys who... If you were in battle today, and let's say you were in battle kind of like back in World War I, trench warfare, you were down in the trenches, and it was just you and Joab, and the enemy of a hundred men with their rifles, they're approaching you. <laughs> you might want to turn your gun on Joab and kill him before you deal with the enemy because once the enemy gets here, you don't know what that guy's going to do. That guy might turn on you. That's the kind of guy Joab was. And so he says, Solomon, I'm telling you, you better deal with this guy. He's rogue. The second man Solomon needs to deal with is Barzillai, or rather this man's descendants. But David tells him to deal kindly with this man's descendants. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 19 for the background here. And beginning there in verse 31. 2 Samuel 19 verse 31. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim. He went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, come over with me. And I'll provide for you in Jerusalem at my side. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? Today I'm 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant, what is not? Can your servant taste 
what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king recompense me with such a reward? Please let your servant return so that I may die in my own town near the graves of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, uh, uh, Chinon. Let him go over with my lord the king and do so for him whatever seems good to you. The king answered, Chinon shall go over with me and I'll do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people crossed over the Jordan and the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. So this man, this aged man, a wealthy man, he had always been such a staunch supporter of, of, of King David. He's somebody that King David wanted him to stay with him. So David basically says to Solomon, you know, his descendants, give them a lifelong pension. Let them eat at your table. And the third man Solomon needs to deal with is Shammai. You remember Shammai, the, the Benjamite? You remember what he did? Anybody remember his activity? What did he do to David when David was on the run from Absalom? He was on, he was on a ledge of cliff right above David. As David's leaving Jerusalem weeping because his own son is trying to kill him. Shemai's up there doing something. What's he doing? You remember? He's yelling curses down at David and throwing rocks at him. You dog, you man of blood, blah, blah, blah. He's cursing David for everything he's worth. And then remember when the situation turned and, and David ended up prevailing over Absalom because Joab had killed Absalom, Shemai had... Uh-oh, he comes back to David now begging for his life, begging for mercy, because according to the law, what he did against the king, King David, he should have been put to death. But he, he begs for mercy, and David spares his life. But you know what? He knew that this was a guy who was an opportunist. When it seemed like Absalom had had the upper hand, he was cursing David. When David maintained the kingdom, oh, he's coming back to David's side now. So Shammai's not a very principled man. You know, it's, it's kind of like I'm with whoever's winning at the moment. I remember Brian, when he was a little kid, we'd be watching football games. Who are you pulling for, Brian? He happened to be pulling in that moment for whoever was winning. <laughs> In ancient times for a king, a leader, to have somebody like Shammai, is a dangerous man to have around. Now, you'll notice with verse 10, we have the death of King David. And what surprises you here is what? How simply it's stated. I mean, folks, think about it. This is the most popular king and leader the nation of Israel has ever had. That God promised to have one of his descendants on the throne forever. And such a simple statement about his death. 
Y'all remember when Princess died was killed in a car wreck? Remember that funeral? My goodness, all the TV coverage and tons and tons of political figures and national leaders and crowds. I mean, big, huge fanfare. King David dies. Just a simple statement about it. You know what I think the point is? Reading about this in the Bible. It's being emphasized. Men come and go. Even kings come and go. The Bible is not about man. It's about God who's working out his purposes. One king is dead, but God has raised up another on the throne. The challenge for the new king is going to be to walk in faithfulness as his predecessor did. That's the important message. Now, thirdly, we see the first challenge to the throne. Verses 13 and following. Here's Adonijah again. You just thought you were done with this guy from chapter 1, right? Remember what he did? Tried to take the throne by stealth, even before his father David had died. You remember once Solomon became the legitimate king, what he did with Adonijah? He dismissed him in peace to be on his best behavior. And he lets Adonijah know if Adonijah proves to be a man of honor, Adonijah's not going to have anything to fear from Solomon. And you know what? It'd be great if the story ended right there. But have you ever noticed that those who have schemes and are cunning and deceptive, that's just part of their makeup, they never seem to give it a rest. That's how Adonijah was. He plans a scheme. He goes to Bathsheba and he makes a proposal for her. Solomon gained the kingdom. It was God's will. I recognize that now. That was God's will for my brother Solomon to be the king. And I'm just asking you to do one little thing for me. I mean, this seems fair, right? Just one little thing. My brother got the throne. He's the leader. I ought to get something out of this deal. So give me my father's heating pad. Remember how it said uh, Abishag, an ancient version of a heating pad? Just give me my dad's heating pad. Give me her. There's only one problem with that. To have the woman who had been the king's nurse, who is now viewed as part of his harem, even though there was no sexual activity there, but to desire the king's nurse was a subtle way of claiming that the throne was yours. Folks, make no mistake about it. This is a coup in the making after David's death. Adonijah is planning his strategy how he can still take away the throne. And some suggest that Bathsheba just didn't see this. Others suggest Bathsheba knows exactly what's going on here. So she just plays along, puts the matter before Solomon, and she knows what Solomon's going to do. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Solomon's, Solomon sees 
he sees exactly what Adonijah's motive here is. And he has him put to death. Well, finally, let's look tonight at securing the throne, verses 26 to 46. These verses are basically a wrap-up to the advice David gave to Solomon, beginning back in verse 5. Solomon is carrying through on all of what David said. First, Solomon deals with Abiathar. He's the priest, the priest who had sided with Adonijah. Now, what does Solomon do? Solomon doesn't take his life, but Solomon essentially retires him from the priesthood. But what's important to see here is this is the fulfillment of what God had said to Eli at Shiloh. Do you remember? Do you remember what God had said to Eli? Yeah. Eli had those wicked sons, Hophni and Phineas. Wicked sons that were doing horrible things. And Eli didn't correct them. And, and remember when God spoke to Samuel as a young boy, and, and we're told in 1 Samuel that you know God had said he was gonna he was gonna remove the priesthood from Eli. Because of Eli's sons, and again that Eli had not stopped them. And then this will be the reestablishment of the line of Phineas that we read about in Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, what Phineas the priest does, he helps stay off the wrath of God against the people when they sin. And so God is reestablishing the line of Phineas there in Numbers 25. He's bringing an end to Eli's line just as he said in 1 Samuel he would do. So we see that taking place here with Solomon retiring Abiathar from the priesthood. Now, Joab knew with the death of Adonijah that he was next. So he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar, remember there would be the altar and, and the, the four corners had, had outturned horns on them. It was a place of refuge for the innocent. And if you read in the book of Amos, God talks about, because of the way the people had sinned and sinned and sinned and not repented, how the horns of the altar were going to be broken off. What was God saying through Amos the prophet? There is going to be no safe refuge for my people when my judgment falls. But Joab grabs these horns of the altar, but again, he wasn't innocent. But Solomon's military commander's not sure he can go in to, you know, the tent of meeting up to the altar 
and actually take a man there who's grabbed a hold of the place of refuge. And so Solomon instructs him to go in and go ahead and take his life. And then in verse 36, Solomon puts Shemai in Jerusalem where he can keep an eye on him. But after three years, Shemai takes off to go find his servants and he dies for it. So what do we see by the end of chapter 2? We see that Solomon has tied up all the loose ends that David has admonished him to tie up. So we get to the end of chapter 2. Solomon has done all of that. So guess what, folks? What Solomon does now in the kingdom he'll have to answer for all the enemies are dead so essentially Solomon's going to be without excuse now he's beginning beginning in chapter 3 Solomon's going to be starting with a clean slate he's taking care of all of his enemies and all of his dad's enemies clean slate and you know what we're going to see in the book of Kings who was Solomon's worst enemy? Solomon. Exactly. It reminds me of the 1970 cartoon, Pogo. We have seen the enemy, and he is us. You remember that? That's what you can end up saying about Solomon. Because chapter 2 closes now. Hey, this guy's going to have no excuse to go and be a godly king. And he's ultimately going to fail. Well, some lessons, and I've, I've given you these pretty much verbatim. There's nothing greater for a leader to do than to be a godly person who loves and obeys God. This is truly where wisdom where the wisdom to lead, uh, the wisdom and strength to lead comes from. No greater uh, opportunity for a leader than to be a godly person who obeys God. Lesson number two: God places leaders in leadership. He brings down one and exalts another. Folks, God is in charge of history. God is sovereign. One leader ends, God raises up another. This is God's doing. We can even trust this today. Sometimes God doesn't give us the leaders that we need, but the leaders that we deserve. A third lesson, a leader is not above God's law. He too is subject to it. And so the central battle of life is the battle of the human heart. Can a man remain true to God? Can he remain obedient to God? That's going to be Solomon's greatest challenge. And guess what? It's your greatest challenge and my greatest challenge too. And then the last lesson. Though the New Testament instructs us to love our enemies and not to murder, this chapter reminds us that sometimes enemies must be removed from their positions 
an enemy allowed to, to stay can be like a cancer. <coughs> okay. So now the transition is complete between David and that Saul. And where we'll pick up next week in chapter 3 is what a, a wonderful way in which Solomon begins his reign and how everybody sees that God has blessed this guy. Any questions about tonight? Any statements or questions? I'm sorry, what now? Securing the throne. Uh, the first challenge to the throne being Adonijah, of course. Sneaky guy. Yep. 